Welcome to Read This, Read That. I am Jackie Reed. I'm Joanne Reed. What's up, cousin soror friend? Hello, cousin soror <laughs> sister friend. How are you? <laughs> so I'm doing well. So much to get to. We have such a great guest today, but I got to ask you because I know before we started the show, a lot of stress in your life. How you doing? Let's wind it down. How you doing? Woosa. Woosa. Relax, relate, release. Relax, relate, release. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little overwhelmed, a little overworked, a little overboidened, a little tired, uh, and trying to still figure out how to like make all of my things that I have to do work in the space of time that I have and still have me time and haven't quite figured that out quite. A you know, wonderful assistant who's fabulous and is helping me. Sean, who's like makes my life possible, is helping me. You are helping me. I have a whole squad of people who are trying. Even my executive producer, <laughs> Tina, she's jumped into the mix. It's, it's like a whole gang of people trying to get me to not do things. But, you know, I'm a little bit of a say yes, sir. So a little, a <laughs> a, you said a, a little bit of a? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Sean just last night had to text me. What happened to November? Because I said yes to something <laughs> else. <laughs> but it, it's 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 challenging because you know we were talking about this. Um, we were talking the other this the other day, cousin Jackie. It is very hard to say no when you kind of feel like obligated to say yes to stuff, and then you end up like obligating, 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 and then you just start you're out of time. And I, I met I'm reaching that I'm out of time point. Yeah, from I I what's the biggest hurdle for you in all of this? It's just not, it's just not really feeling like there's anything I can legitimately say no to, you know, feeling like I feel obligated to do a lot of things that I probably am not, but I feel bad because it's like, oh, this is a friend that's asking me to do this or, oh, I've known this person a long time. I don't want them to think that just because now I'm on a primetime show, I'm not, I don't have time for them or, or, oh, they really need my help. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's very, it's just, you just feel like you're, you feel like you got to do it because if you don't do it, you're like not a nice person. And my name is Joy, so I have to be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but as I always say to you, as your friend, right? Yeah. I'm like the first one to say to you, I'm going to ask you this, but if you don't have time, you you have to say, right? Yeah. And it's like, I have to get, you you have to be given permission to say no, which is dangerous for somebody who has so much on her plate. Yes, it is. It is. And and, and next year is going to get even more like there's you know, and you know, some of the things that are on it. So it's uh, it's just going to get more. So time management is not easy. And that is why I, I you know, hired a brilliant um, assistant who's great at time management because I'm terrible at it. I can barely get to anything on time. I barely make every flight on time. Um, so I need like four people to make sure that I get on time. My daughter, you know, Jason, sometimes when he has time. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. I think my life is a lot. I mean, and this, look, and this, this is what I prayed for. Right. So I can't really complain, you know, so I have to just live with it. I have to just deal with it. It's bl- No, it's you don't. You can absolutely complain with about it. You, you asked for, you prayed for a successful life, like a, a career where you could influence people, right where you can inform people, educate people. And you got all that. That doesn't mean that you have to die doing it, that you have to die on your, <laughs> that you can't self care. There's right. not, you know, there's this whole thing of I'll sleep when I'm dying, when I'm dead, yeah. you know what? I want to live while I'm awake. I got to do this. I can't say no, but you know, all too well, if you don't make time to self care, yep. you're going to, you're not going to be able to show up 100%. No, and not, I think you always perform well. I think no matter how exhausted you are, when that light comes on, I think you can perform. But I think 
What's unfortunate about the, the flip side of that is that when the lights aren't on, how you feel. Exactly. And a lot of times you feel awful. You're exhausted, yeah. right? You can't sleep. You're eating horribly. You're not working out. Everyone's you're not doing an hour ago. <laughs> like, <literally before. laughs> I mean, it's so funny because it's, it's so true. And I, I was like, it's a generation X thing. I really do think that we are generation was the gen- we were the children of the baby boomers and the baby boomers basically we were latchkey kids so we had to be self sufficient we had to let ourselves in after after fourth grade cook yeah. our own dinner yeah. learn how to do a lot of things ourselves we were home alone a lot we watched a lot of TV we loved TV yeah. but we also were the generation that really didn't have like all the boom benefits that like the millennials have where they had all the tech that can make their lives super easy they have every kind of technology to like ease the burdens of like daily living. We are like in between, like we're the people who gave you, you know, the internet and, and, you know, hip hop and all the good stuff that the millennials get to enjoy and be derivative off of. Sorry, young people. But I mean, but we also inherited just an ethic of I'll sleep till I'm dead. You know, this is the, you know, I'm not a huge fan, but this is the P Diddy generation where it's like, I'm gonna have 18 jobs. I'm gonna have 40 brands. I'm gonna launch another 10 brands. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. And that's just how we were taught. Like get rich or die trying. Like that's, that was the way we were, we came up. And so yeah. it's very hard with the hip hop generation and the hip hop generation is the get rich or die trying generation. Yeah, and but we have to break that. We yeah. really have to push back against that because so many of us are getting sick and actually dying. Oh, no, people you know got in their 50s. Yeah. A thing, like, mo- a lot of the people I've admired growing up who are in my age group are dying. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of these hip hop artists are dead. It's or they're crazy. sick. Or, or they're, they're sick. really sick. You yeah. know what I mean? They yeah. have some chronic ailment, you know, yeah. diabetes, high blood pressure. They yeah. can't walk. Their knees are bad. Their backs are bad. They're too young. They're, for that. In their 50s, they're, and they're already broken it. down. It's true. No, it's very true. The ones who got it right, though, to me, is not even the millennials. The millennials are like the stressed out generation after ours. But Generation Y, though, when I tell you the Susan, the, the, the Simone Biles generation, yeah. they know how to live. They, they really it. do. They yeah. really do. Yeah. I tried to. I wanted to hire this young lady to be uh, my social media manager. Um, But, you know, we kind of bumped heads on some particulars. And one of the things she said to me was um, that she couldn't do what I was asking her to do. She said, because, you know what I mean? It, it, she said, it goes beyond my boundaries and I have to protect Mm -hmm. my boundaries. I'm telling you, those young people, I'm working eight hours, eight, oh, 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 and I'm going home or I'm not coming in. or I'm going to quit my job and start a brand at home and come be a branded influencer on Instagram. Yeah. Like they're just different. They don't feel obligated to stay in a job they hate, you know, pay for stuff they don't need. They don't they, they aren't going to go where they don't want to go. What's going to make them uncomfortable. They have boundaries like they'll tell you. Even boundaries. in relationships, even yes. in their personal lives, they have boundaries. I it's see true. these. Young women and men having boundaries with who they're dating and therefore having much more successful relationships and being more authentic yeah. about who they are, owning their sexuality and things like Everything. that. Everything. I, I applaud it. I applaud it. X is like, you don't like it? I'm going to twerk again on the devil. <laughs> I love him so much. I, I love everything about him. I love him. I love him. your auntie. Well, my wine girl is about my mama who is about Uh-oh. to drive. What did mama read do? What's Girl, that? let me tell you. So my mother's. Don't talk it, about my mama. That's my mama too. Child, listen. <laughs> I'm going to ship her right on to, to your house. <laughs> I'm going to ship her right there. And you're going to put her, send her right back. Girl. So my uncle, my mother's brother is not doing well health wise. He's had a series of health issues. And so 
we heard today that he's really not doing well. So my mother, being the oldest of, of three, wants to go and visit him. She's in Atlanta. He's in Philly. So I'm getting ready to go down to Atlanta. You know, I'm driving, driving mm-hmm. down to Atlanta to go help my mom with a whole bunch of stuff, girl. I'm going down there for like a week and a half, really help her all this kind of stuff. So now she's like, well, you stay there and I'm going to grab my sister who lives down there, my mother's sister, my aunt. Yeah. And they're going to, she's like, and we'll drive themselves up to Philly <laughs> and we'll meet you in Philly. <laughs> I said, no, mommy. <laughs> Let me drive down and I'll just drive. Cause she wants to, she said, first off, I'm driving. I don't want to fly. I don't feel like going to the airport. I don't want to fly. And your aunt is afraid to fly. So I'm, we not doing that. We drive. Then I can bring, I can bring more things, which is always a problem, which is where I get it from. I get it honest. Got way too much stuff. But that's a whole other episode. So, I mean, she hung up on me. I was like, ma, let me drive. I don't know why you think, which first she, you know, I said, well, why do you want to drive? There you go with all them questions. There you go asking me why I want to do this. Cause I want to, cause I want to, that's why. Cause I'm growing. Like, okay. Okay. I guess. And then I said, and she said, and another thing, why is it that you think I can't drive? Why do you think I can't do it? Now we get to it. Now we get into it. That's what it is. Jackie, it's because. She, as the mama, is like, why are you telling me that I can't do this like I can't do it? I'm telling you, if the do- if my daughter... Their right mind would not want to be driven. Who wants to drive 14, 12 hours? Who doesn't want to be driven? It's not because she doesn't want to be driven. It's that she doesn't want you telling her that she can't do it. See, But I didn't say that. But you implied I just it. said, I'm going to come and drive. <laughs> you implied it by implying that you needed to come and do it. See, you got to find a way to frame it because, you know, when a, when a, when a, when a sister gets to a certain age, you really can't tell her she can't do things because she's really going to push all the way back. And she's going to be like, why can't I? And she's going to be even more determined to do it, even if she doesn't really want to do it. Oh, my God. And my mother, everything is an argument now. Everything is an argument. Ma, what you doing? Why you always got to be asking me what I'm doing? What are you what are you doing? And then my mother is like that kind of then my mother's that Philly. I grew up in North Philly girl. What you doing? Why are you asking me? What are you like? She will get. I'm like, I love it. My sister and I are like, what gang affiliation is she? What is fight? OG. Who is she OG sister. I mean, that see, that's the kind of old lady I'm gonna be, but I'm, I'm gonna have some really giant glasses. And when my kids try to say it. Mom, can you want you? Can we come dr- pick you up and drive you to New York? I'm gonna say, why I can't drive my own damn self to New York? I was <laughs> driving when you was just a zygote in my belly, and I didn't even know if you was gonna be a boy or a girl. I was driving. Don't tell me shit. I've been driving since I was 14. <laughs> no, your kids will not be driving you. Do you know why? Why <laughs> they don't know how to drive? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't teach them. If oh, you don't teach the babies how to drive. Okay, first of all, can I just tell you, I noticed you and Amelia Wyndale. No, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. My mom's getting on my nerves and then, Listen, then we got to get to our hot topics. But this is just last thing I'm going to say. All of those children came down for Thanksgiving. Not only just the boys came, Jamar and Miles, but they also brought, Miles brought his, not one, but two friends. So Chris and another friend, Peter, his two high school friends. So I had all these boys in my house. When I tell you not one of them children could drive me to the store if I needed to go. So I had to drive them. So they had to go to the mall and I was doing something. I had, you know, I had my, my new stylist. So I absolutely love Danielle was at the house 
And we're trying to, and it was taking us a while. They're like getting annoyed that it's taking long. And I'm thinking to myself, you all are each 21 years old. None of you could just, I'll give you the keys. Just get in the car and go. Couldn't do it. They had to Uber themselves to the mall. And I still had to go pick them up. So my thing is, these young people, the one thing I don't love about this generation, they don't want to drive. And I said to them, don't any of you want to look at this nice car? Don't you want to learn to drive? None of them have any desire because you know what? Why would you drive? They got Uber, they got Lyft, and they got Mama. And they got Mama and Daddy. I wouldn't drive anywhere either. If I had somebody to drive me around anywhere, anytime I wanted to go, I wouldn't drive either. But here's the sadness of it. We started off this episode with you talking about how how tired you are, how you don't have time, yet you don't, your children, you don't alleviate yourself as a driver of your children. You know, you're absolutely right. I should have just let them, let them, let them languish out there because it's like they, they should just have that is you're absolutely right i'm too permissive because they because when, when i was a kid i had a mama who could drive me places all i wanted was a driver the minute i turned 50 girl couldn't wait I to get it i couldn't wait i wanted to drive i wanted to drive myself i didn't want my mother to drive me everywhere because i wanted to go places i don't want to take her i wanted to go by myself with my friends i wanted to put my friends in the car and go so i these kids are different they have no desire they have cars available their dad has a car their mom has a car Baby, they will not learn to drive. And I, I can't induce Girl, them. don't want to. Listen, my I mama mean, had, a can, had, a, had a candy apple uh, green Cadillac <laughs> with a with, with, a, with a, uh, some fake plastic roses in the back window. Girl, me and my sister were going to every party, driving every, everywhere. Before, we were, before I was 15, I was driving, you oh, know, listen. because I, I just, I couldn't wait. I, the, the, the day I turned 15, I might have started like December 9th. The day after, I was like, I couldn't wait. As soon as I turned 15, because in Denver, you can get your pre-license and you just have to have an adult in the car with you, but nobody really does. You know, you just put a, a tall teenager in there with you and you drive. And I literally, my mom bought me a, I was so desperate to get a car that when I turned 16, she she bought me for $300 from her best friend, Rita Lejeune Bradford. She Lejeune. Lejeune. Lejeune had two cars. She had a 1972 Cadillac. Well, she drove and nobody couldn't drive it. And she used to smoke in the car. We used to choke and die in the car. <laughs> and she had a cherry red 1979 Buick Apollo with a steering wheel as big as a bus steering wheel. <laughs> and she, stole and she drove with one hand. And you drive it with one hand well, with, your head, with, your fat, with your fist, with your whole open hand. And you turn it like this, sir. She sold that to my mama. With a cigarette. With a cigarette. And that's what she would be. She would have a cigarette in one hand. Saying her sayings, <laughs> you have her sayings. Oh, it ain't nothing but a thing. She had a, she had a, she had a saying about everything. And she would lean back, and she was from Chicago. So, you know, she had that, that Chicago accent. She had them two cars, but it was just one little Lejeune. She was a little lady. She, she didn't need two cars, so she was like, "I'm gonna go ahead and get you get get your, you." She wants to drive so badly. Let her have a car. Just let her have it. Girl. So she got my mother to agree to pay three because she was gonna give it to her. But my mother was. West Indian proudful. She was like, I- I'm not going to take the car for free. Sell it to me. She sold it to her for $300. And that's what I drove all through high school. A cherry red 1979. I could put like eight people in there. It had a bench seat in the front and a bench seat in the back. It was so And would cool. survive and would survive any accident. And I got in an accident. I eventually got in an accident. An old man ran a stop, a stoplight, hit my Buick Apollo, 
put a gentle dent in it and spun his shit all around. And it flew across the thing. It bounced off of my car. Because my 79 Buick Apollo, when I tell you baby that car, it went boing. <laughs> right? Those, those and when the police came, he said, you hurt? you hurt? Do you have any neck pain? I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> I'll be going to check that old man. Listen, listen. Yeah, teach them babies how to drive. Now listen to they me. Need to yes, you're right. They I need think. to learn how to drive. Announcing the Mocha Podcast Network, an innovative lifestyle podcast network featuring conversations from a black perspective. Curated with respected voices led by actresses and comedians Sherry Shepard and Kim Whitley. We're funny and we have a yes. point of view. We call that edumatainment. That's what we call it. Ed- is that what it is? Veteran TV journalist Rolanda Watts. Shocking the heck out of everybody. The legendary Unky Divas in Vogue. This topic is girl groups in the industry. To syndicated broadcast personalities, Lonnie Love and Dee Dee McGuire, as well as an array of experts and activists. Mocha Podcast Network, a lifestyle destination with authentic voices and perspectives designed to enrich and empower women of color with a unique listening experience. More than a destination, the Mocha Podcast Network is a full-service studio that offers an ongoing portfolio of production, distribution, marketing, guest booking, and most importantly, ad sales. With a unique revenue model for podcasters that includes customized promotional campaigns created specifically around podcaster and targeted audience, service social media promos and pushes, MPN brand advertising, targeted electronic newsletter, experienced sales representation, For advertisers, the Mocha Podcast Network is a safe marketplace to align their brands with trusted voices, organically engaging the highly in-demand female consumer and more. With quality over quantity, from concept to completion, now is the time for content creators and brands to join the innovative Mocha Podcast Network and experience unapologetic conversations with a new perspective. Okay, we got to start with Alec Baldwin. Did you get to watch the interview? I know you know all about it and you've seen the highlights, but did you actually sit and watch the interview with George Stephanopoulos? I didn't watch the whole thing, but I think I watched the the all enough. I think I got it. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you know what? I think it was such a mistake for him to do this interview. I don't know who his attorneys are, but they are crazy. For letting him. And, but I see Alec Baldwin as being the kind of person that no matter what advice he gets, he's going to yeah. do what he wants to what do. Wants. I remember yeah. him being on the side of the road talking to the paparazzi, that, that band of, uh, journalists or, or I don't, I don't know if they were journalists, but reporters, bloggers, whoever they were. And just on the side of the street talking about this whole shooting. But what he was saying in that interview, like it it came out that he said that he never pulled a trigger, right? That he pulled Mm -hmm. back something on the gun. But I just, I don't understand why. I was just sitting there listening and going, why is he doing this interview? And is it that he feels that he feels like, is he trying to win the court of public opinion? Yeah, like, I, I don't think, get it. I think, he, I think that he's trying to win the court of public opinion. I think he's trying to protect his reputation 
He doesn't want to come across as somebody that deliberately or, you know, uh, carelessly, carelessly shot someone, partly because I think he's concerned about lawsuits, which, you know, he should be. He was the producer of the film as well. Russ, he was a producer of it as well as a star of it. So he's got to be worried about liability. But if you're worried about liability, the last thing you should do is give an interview like this where you commit yourself to a story that you're not going to be able to sustain. Because I'm going to tell you, as somebody who and I don't know if you've shot guns, I've been I, I've done gun no. training. Um, it is not possible. I'm just going to say it is not possible for a gun to fire if you didn't pull the trigger. You, the way that you make a gun fire is you pull the trigger. So well, there, he's saying, saying it was a misfire and that this was an old, like this was a specialized kind of gun, right? It was an old gun. It was an old gun. And so even with an old gun, the reality is what he's saying is that he cocked back the gun. Like there's a, there's a piece, you know, you cock the gun where you, you know, on the, in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of a, you, that little piece right there. If there's been any pressure on the trigger before you pull that back, it will go off. But it's right. not because you pulled back that cocking system. It's because there was pressure on the trigger before you did it. So if you pick it up wrong, like when you pick a gun up, you know, like when you're a kid, you do this. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. actually the way you're supposed to hold a gun. You're supposed to hold it with your finger out and not even touch the trigger. Because if right. you even touch that bad boy and then you do any of the other mechanisms on it, you can make the gun misfire. Now, I'm not saying he deliberately put his finger on the trigger, but I'm just saying his, his finger had to have, somebody had to have put pressure on that trigger at some point for the yeah. him, for it to go off when he cocked it. That's the first problem. The second problem is what he said after that, that he said, then I saw her go down and I wonder what happened. That she, she fainted. fainted. <laughs> Come on, Cletus. You're telling me if you, I, again, I don't know how many of y'all have ever been in a room when a gun has fired. Even no, an, I've never. Gun. Okay. I have old gun, new gun, small gun, big gun. Happy gun, sad gun. It goes bang. Yeah. It's loud. He it's said it was so loud. So how would you wonder what happened if you're holding a gun, you hear a loud bang, and the woman goes down? And you Okay. Get- Not that I'm defending him, but I'm just going to insert this story here. As someone who has never been uh, like in a room where there has been gunfire. I have been like outside and there was gunfire and I was right. walking to my car in Brooklyn. You probably know this story because it's why I moved out of Brooklyn or, or why I moved from where I was living mm-hmm. because I was walking to my car, which was parked on the street. And I heard what I thought were firecrackers. Um, and everybody around me was diving to the ground. And this wow. black man was looking at me and he said, get down, get down. And I like gently was like looking around like what, what is happening? Cause I didn't know I hadn't, I wasn't that accustomed to gunfire. And wow. so I just didn't know how to react. I say that to say, you know, I don't know what Alec Baldwin's, you know, uh, experiences has been with guns and gunfire. And, you know, they were saying that some people on the set, I don't know if he was a part of this, were just leisurely shooting guns in between scenes and things like that, that that was possibly happening. I heard about that. But what I'm saying is if he were in shock and just didn't realize, you know what I mean? Right. That he hit her, um, you know, with with that gunfire, maybe, maybe he did think that well, she fainted. I don't think that he knew that the gun hit her and then would say in an interview, I thought she fainted. Like, I don't I don't understand the logic in that. The logic doesn't make sense because the other thing is that if when you fire a gun or a gun is fired that's in your hand, you know, if we're going to take his um, way, he put it. 
the recoil on it. I mean, it's shocking. The first time I ever pulled the trigger on a firearm, it's it's shocking because yeah. it really it makes your whole body shake. I mean, guns are the reason guns are dangerous and why they shouldn't be in the hands of children. We're going to talk a little bit about what happened in Michigan. The reason why children should not touch them is because they're so dangerous and they're also terrifying to shoot. When you shoot them, it your whole body reacts to it because it's loud and it's physically of emotion. It actually recoils. And, you know, the older guns have even worse recall. So the reality is if it was an old gun, it probably shook his whole arm and his in your body shake. So I don't understand how you cannot realize that a gun had just been fired that was in your hand. I don't get that. And then, so that doesn't make sense to me. And and then the idea that he's like, well, the other guy was covered in blood. But it's like, but you, so you stood over her and you didn't see that, that she was shot. Like it's, a lot of it doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, but do I, you think he's, he's being theatrical or overly? I don't know. And, like, why would he get in there and lie? I don't think he's lying. I think that he might have been so shocked by what happened that this is his memory of it as he's constructing it from the shock of what happened. But here's yeah. the problem. Don't go and put that on tape. Right. Because if later on, when you really get a chance to relive it and you're back away from it a little bit and the shock is worn off and you really think through what happened, if that ain't the story, you've now told that story on tape on national television. Right. And any lawsuits are just going to play that tape. They're just going to They're play already it. coming. Gloria Allred is already representing someone else, uh, you know, who was in the room at the time that wasn't even hit. But one thing he did say that I think it, a question he asked that I think is actually valid, and he has a very good point. Who put live ammunition in a gun that's being used on a movie set? But that's the point. That's what I was saying earlier. There were reports that 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 in between shooting that they're like part of the cast crew, you know, and this is just Same what was people were, were out shooting. Yeah. We're, out shooting, like just to kill time, shooting cans or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so possibly that's they left whether yeah. it never should have. Happened. But my, you know, um, someone was interviewing Gloria Allred, who is, you know, representing someone who's, you know, filed a, who's filed a lawsuit in this situation. And they were interviewing her this morning on CNN. And the reporter asked, the anchor asked a really good question because she was saying Alec Baldwin is at fault and he should have checked that gun before he even like he should have checked it and you know the the anchor said to her but do you have it on record that, that all actors I mean we're you know we're going to be talking to you know an actor from the harder they fall and think about all the gunplay that they you know gun action in that movie do you think every actor on that set checked no. to see if it was loaded no they have no. a whole crew that's supposed to that. that that's their job. Armorer. There's a, there's somebody called an armorer on every set who's in charge right. of the gun. So first of all, number one, no one should be able to take guns and just shoot cans with them in between shots. That is completely bad form. You're not supposed to do that on a film set. If you've ever been on well, a that film tells set, you what kind of set this was. Correct. Possibly. And that's number one. The armorer apparently also was a newbie. Was not like the regular armorer. Wasn't a union person because of the strike. So the, I think a lot of what happened here is during that strike. During that point where people were having a labor strike because they weren't paying folks, they were bringing in some lower tier, lower paid people that really shouldn't have been there. And, and on a dangerous set where you have guns, guns are dangerous, period. 
Yeah. And if you're going to have a set with guns on it, like, you know, we're going to talk with somebody who's in a Western. There's lots of guns on that set. You need a professional armorer and you need discipline where no one can touch those guns. The armor is the only person who's supposed to touch it. And then it goes from the armorer's hands into his hands, having been cleaned to make sure it's not got live ammunition. And there should never be live ammunition on any set ever. But here's the thing. In, in today's age of technology and what can be created, on a movie set with sound and, you know, all types of things. Why do you even need a real gun? Why do you need a real gun? Why do you need bullets? You're going to recreate the sound. No one's using actual gun, the sound of gunfire in a movie. Most of the sound is recreated afterwards. They have people whose entire job is to yeah. create the sound of someone walking down the street, a bus right. going by, a lightning yeah. strike, Pain gunfire. Yes, all that. They they have their, it's like their profession to recreate sound. You don't need a real gun. So like, why? This is again, I go back to it and that's not Alec Baldwin's job. Now he's the producer, so he has some responsibility for who gets hired on that set. So that's where he's going to have liability. Not as the actor, but yeah. as the producer, what was on there, we don't know. what. And also, producer, when you're also talent, that might mean that he just put his put some money into it or put his yes. He might not be actually physically producing, which I doubt he was. So, you, you know, people are going to him because he's got the deep pockets. Yes. The reality is, there were a lot of people way below him that should have been checking to make sure there were no live rounds, no guns that can even shoot. There are guns you can make that are replica guns that can't shoot. They're not capable yeah. of shooting. That's what you use on a movie set. Not real guns. Whoever did that, they should be in trouble because that's crazy. And yeah. somebody should be accountable for having live rounds on a movie set. Shouldn't yeah, I I want to listen. I want to know what ha- somebody needs to get on that and get to the bottom of it. Um, yeah, okay, so we got to There was a lot of tragic news uh, this week with um, the tragic uh, murder of Jacqueline uh, Avant, uh, Clarence yeah. Avant's wife. Virgil Abloh, um, who rose to fame in the fashion industry, became the creative director for Louis Vuitton and then went beyond that um, to, you know, be one of the top, yes, Mm -hmm. one of the top executive, black executives uh, in in the fashion industry. Um, And then there was the shooting at the school in Michigan. I was just like, how much, what is going on in this country and how much more can we take? I mean, for you, this stuff has got to be tough because you have to report on all of these things night after night after night. I mean, I know it's mostly politics for you, but when it is a big story, you know, like yeah. the Michigan shooting, it's we're all over and, and then and then when you're black and you see things like this and you see how the shooter, um, the accused shooter in the Michigan uh, situation is being treated as far as like pictures of him praying and the disparity, you know, when it comes to how black people are treated in a situation and white people are treated. It's just so frustrating. Well, you know I, I just, white? you know, how I knew that kid was white because they, they took were, him into custody. That's yeah. right. He came, he, he went to custody. Like before you see him, you know, you know, and, and, and now and go ahead, go, go, go. is that I think one of the issues that we don't talk enough about, how does a 15 year old, number one, what kind of parents get a 15 year old, a six hour, it's basically, it's like a Glock. It's like another, it's like another brand that's like a Glock. Why does a kid need that? If he likes to hunt, get him a shotgun. You don't, I mean, there's no reason to get a kid that kind of gun, but apparently and allegedly the father bought the gun ostensibly for himself, but it was really a present for the son who's 15 yeah. and troubled and had issues in school. 
And so my question is, if the kid, if, if other kids in the school, if, if other adults in the school realize the kid had some issues, if he, if the parents knew he had a gun, how come nobody worried that he'd be a school shooter? Apparently the mother did right at the end. But the reason why they didn't is he's white. A black yeah. kid that people knew. He would have been gun, suspended. He would have been expelled if it were uh-huh. a black kid. Would have never come into that school. Or they would have been watching him like a hawk. They would have been watching every move he made. They would have checked his bags. This kid, the morning of the shooting, his parents had a meeting with school officials about his behavior because they had been ignoring. I think they ignored an email from a teacher. Um, He he had he was drawing pictures with like. Yes. And 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 emojis. And the teacher emailed the parents about it and they ignored it. And now they are they are facing charges as well of manslaughter charges is is at least one of the charges that I hear. And I'm happy about that because these parents need to be responsible for this stuff. They need to be held responsible. But again, I mean, I sat on a grand jury where a 15 or 14 year old boy. And this was one where it was just me and one white girl sitting next to us out of 22 people. We were trying to say, don't. Don't bind this kid over for trial. He's going to have to go to Rikers. You know, what happens at Rikers to little 14-year-olds? They they can end up really destroyed. And, you know, the rest of these people, who are some black people too, I have to say, decided they were going to bind this kid over for trial. What he did was he brought a gun to school in his backpack because kids were bullying him. He dropped mm-hmm. his backpack and the gun halfway fell out. So they saw he had a gun. Do you know, not only did they kick that kid out of school, but they they, they called the police, had him arrested. And that kid ended up in Rikers. No, what? yeah, no, because of our grand jury. And it was only two of us who voted no out of 22, not to bind this kid over for trial. We were like, let let the kid get counseling. Let's uh, you, that the, the boy is troubled, bullied, brought a gun to school that he shouldn't have had. No black kid could be a menace and a threat walking around emo as hell in school, drawing crazy pictures about murdering people and get away with bringing a gun in their backpack and make it. No way. That's why you have so many of these school shooters who I think are young white men because they are not seen as a threat. They're not seen as a threat, just as the same way that, you know, when I used to work in retail, you know, we used to say that, you know, people watch the blacks. And ignore the whites that, are, and that's why the white people are the best shoplifters because nobody's mm. watching them. Nobody's no paying one, attention to them. No one's paying. They can yeah. stuff all sorts of stuff in their bag because no one's watching. They're watching all the black people. So you I, remember, you remember that video. I don't know how old it is, um, but it was of this school, this this white kid, a boy that was in high school with a gun, and the the story was that the uh, a teacher, it was a black teacher, talked him out of it, had him put the gun down and then hugged him. I think about what you just said about the case that you were a a part of that grand jury. Imagine if someone like hugged that kid and talked to him because since it didn't go how it could have gone, right? He didn't shoot anybody. They saw it. Why not give that? Like, I wonder what happened to that white kid that they took the gun from and then ended up hugging and embracing. Like that was so people just were like, oh, that's such a beautiful, touching story. And I thought that it was. But it just makes me think about the number of black kids who may be on the edge of doing something, but never do something and end up, you know, in that pipeline to prison. They end up in detention. They end up getting expelled. You know what I mean? It's just it's crazy. But that uh, disparity. It's, that's the disparity. It is. Black, and, and the thing is, is that that's why 
you are you are still safer. I mean, there are instances where black kids bring guns to school in, in cities that have a lot of gangs and other issues, but they don't handle it the same way. They, they pay attention to it. They get real active about it. But with this kid, he's literally walking around. He's a ticking time bomb. His yeah. parents should have known it. The school should have known it. So we're going to have Shaq Bruce is going to open the show with us tonight because the community is very angry. The community in Michigan, they are very, very angry. Um, and they want to know why it is that all these red flags were missed in an age when school shootings happen all the time. They're, America has school shootings almost every day, it seems like, or mass shootings. This is like a routine thing at yeah. this point. So you don't see the signs. After Columbine, we all know what the signs are. Isolated kid, not talking to people, doesn't have friends. Anger acting, issues. Anger issues. Getting yeah. called to attention, getting in trouble. You check, 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 check. Everything about this kid checked it off. And, and I don't. And I don't understand how parents, and I'm not a parent, so, you know, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't understand how parents feel like, how some parents feel like it's a good outlet to let a gun, uh, let a child learn how to shoot a gun. That that's a good outlet for a troubled kid. You know what I mean? He's isolated. He's this, he's that. Let's take him out to the gun range. Let's buy, you know, why, why is that an activity for a kid? I just, I don't think that kids should be handling guns because he knew how to handle that gun. You talk about the recoil and all of that guy. He's a 15 year old kid. He knew what he was doing. That's right. He knew his way around a gun. And the parents were very pro-gun, gun, you know, gun. Yeah, of course. Fucking tote, you know, Trumpers, gun toting Trumpers who love guns. And, you know, the mom made a whole manifesto about how she voted for Trump, a whole open letter to Trump that, you know, she voted for him because of guns, because of second amendment. But here's the thing. Guns have only one purpose to kill things or kill people. There ain't no other purpose for guns. Guns were not made as toys. They weren't designed as decorations. They're not there to make you feel more masculine or make you look cool. Guns really have one purpose. They were invented and designed to kill people and things. But people don't see it that way. They see it as a hobby. They see it as recreation. They see it as something to collect. And the only reason you go to the gun range is to get better at killing people and things. The only reason, when you go to a gun range, I still have my first gun range thing that we did when we did training. You know what it is? It's an outline of a human body. Yeah, and if and you you win in the gun range game by getting it in the head or getting it in the heart, you are learning to kill people and things, not injure them, not disable them, not slow them down. You're learning how to kill people and things. That's the only purpose for guns. So you so being pro gun makes no sense. If you're pro gun, there's nothing pro about it. You may need a gun. A gun may be a necessity if you need it for your security, which is why I learned how to use one. Yeah. Because you live in a world full of dangerous people. Because this country you know, is crazy and you just I'm never know. Pro-gun. I'm not in favor of killing people and things. I You're pro-protection. I'm pro-protecting myself. The, the idea of people get fetishized about guns. Like it's a thing. It's a it's a glorious thing. You want to put it on a pedestal. That to me oh, yeah. Who are those? Who's that uh, politician that has pictures with the with the guns and the, oh, that's, and that's, that's stupid. That's that's a Lauren Boeber. She about as dumb. Yeah. She from Colorado makes me humiliated about being from Colorado. She isn't so dumb. She is dumb. She used it as a decoration in her Zoom calls. They yeah. were all behind her. Yeah. Like a de- guns are not decorations. Stupid. She, she is so stupid. That is not what they're for. They're for killing. Period. I agree. You know I agree. I agree. Well, listen, let's talk about something on a much lighter note. Let's talk about Stacey Abrams. 
officially announcing another run for the governor of Georgia, my home state. I was so excited to hear this news. Did you know this was coming? Yes. I I think it's been an open secret that she was going to run. It was just a matter of when she was going to announce it. Um, So I think everyone has been paying attention to everything she's done. She's so when Stacey ran the first time she started in 2014, building up the bridges for it by doing this massive voter registration campaign designed to get 500,000 people registered. Brian Kemp, who also wanted to be governor, was on the other side as secretary of state trying to knock off those people off the rolls as fast as she was putting them on. So it was a race between the two of them. Could he knock off enough people before she could get enough people on? He ends up knocking off about 35,000 people, mostly probably predominantly, you know, black and brown people Mm -hmm. to make sure that he could squeak in. Well, now he's not secretary of state, so he can't manipulate the voter rolls that way. She's now done so much more. Her organization, when you combine that with the Tasha Brown, um, Black Voters Matter, and Fair Fight Action, which is her group. Between the two of those groups alone, they have pushed so that, or, you know, with other other groups that are helping too. Georgia, your home state, is at ninety five percent voter registration yeah. of the current adults. So that's amazing. So he can't amazing. He can't take enough people off to make sure that he wins re-election because he ain't in that job no more. Yeah. So now it's going to be a fairer fight where it's just who can get out their voters. So I think she has a very good chance of winning. I'm so excited about that. I was happy um, to hear, because there's some crazy things going on in Georgia with Herschel Walker yeah. running oh, courts. <laughs> but I mean, you know. he's running for Senate against Raphael Warnock. It could be this cuckoo bird, Vernon Jones, that's running for, for, for against her if he beats uh, Brian Kemp in the primary. If, it could be an all-Black Senate and governor's race which would be interesting in the sense that it would give white conservatives an excuse to vote for these two really loony black candidates because they could be like, I voted for somebody black because I'm not racist. So unfortunately, it helps the Republicans to have blacks on the on the ballot because then white people can say, well, I'm voting for because I like black. You know, I, you can't say I hate black people because I voted for Herschel Walker yeah. and this other loony guy. Um, on the other side, I think seeing those, the quality of people who are trying to come for Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams is going to motivate black people to come out and vote. Yeah. And here's the only big X factor. Is that new voting law going to do enough so that when it all gets said and done, those yeah. Republicans just set aside what happened in Fulton County and negate Fulton County's votes, which is the key to winning that state. And I uh, can see them doing that. Yeah, they I might can see that also. And end up in court. That, I, as I assume that Senate race and that governor's race are probably going to end up in court because Republicans are going to try to reverse it if Stacey wins. Yeah. You, you know, you mentioned um, Vernon. You know that he and I go way back. I have known Ooh. him for years. He is a family friend. Now, I haven't talked to him. Like, he's been to my mom's house for Christmas dinner. Um, I, I know, like, go way back. Way, way, way back. Uh, like for you, I've known him attacking me on Twitter. (laughs) I knew knew him before Twitter, before social media. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I I haven't had a chance to talk to him lately. Um, I don't know if his number changed, but I have texted you, Vernon, and you haven't texted me, uh, texted me back. Um, but I, I haven't had a chance to really talk to him about his politics as of late. Um, and just what's going on. But I just, I'm so confused about. He was an Obama Democrat and called himself an Obama Democrat. Yeah, he was the DeKalb County commissioner and he, he did such, I mean, I don't know what is going on. He got sued by white, I think, I don't think he understands what, what, what he's going to face in this primary. He got sued by some white Georgians 
who said he racially discriminated against them to hire more black people. Then yeah. after that, suddenly he switches and becomes a Trump Republican, 180 degrees from where he started. He's got all these other like personal issues with an ex-girlfriend and stuff that might come up. He's got a lot in his bag and he's going to come out there and the right is going to take him apart because he was on the other side for so long. They're not going to let him survive that. But he's out there loud and proud, big Trumper. Yeah, we'll see what happens. He's way by, you know, they're tossing him in the crowd and everything. Have you seen that video? I've seen it. I'm embarrassed for him. Oh, crowd surfing and whatnot. So we have a great guest today from The Harder They Fall. Y'all aren't going to believe who we have. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Woo! Well, Joanne, let me tell you, for very, for separate reasons, we are both excited about this guest for today. You know, I am a for me, as a twihard, you know, I have adored him for years. <laughs> 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 but right now, everybody is loving him for his portrayal of Bill Pickett in the fantastic. It's going to grab all the awards, the harder they fall. Eddie Kathaki is here with us right now on Read This, Read That. And we are so excited. Eddie, welcome to the show. How are you? Your uh, energy is infectious. You, you rallying me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Yo. You know, you okay, talked yeah. about in the past, you talked about how crazy it was, you know, and, and I, I referenced Twilight, but follow with me here because it's, it was so long ago. But you talked about going to Comic-Con and the excitement of that. Compare that to the excitement of The Harder They Fall because everybody, the excitement building up to this film and now that it's out, from the from the cast to the soundtrack to the history that it brings to the you know seeing black people in westerns, there's so much energy around this film. What's that like for you? I mean, I guess the comparison is to both films, but aside from that, two completely <laughs> two completely different experiences, two completely different missions, two completely different social imprints, um, cultural imprints, Comic Con. Uh, the books were very, very popular, the Twilight series. And we didn't realize how popular they were until Comic-Con. As I talked about this before there, there were yeah. 6,000 people that camped out uh, outside of Hall H in San Diego four days before Comic-Con began. So the energy was ridiculous. And then they actually achieved the highest decibel level volume-wise in Hall H to date. So it was like, you're on stage feeling like you're a Beatle. You know, it was like, it was crazy. This is different. We're coming out of a pandemic. You know, the world's just slightly different. This is a this is a a film that is not only entertaining, but it's attempting to like right wrongs of history with the erasure yeah. of black cowboys. So yeah. it's 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 meaningful. It's not just entertainment. It's history. Yeah. Did you All right, Eddie, I have so many questions. I have so many questions. Yeah, go ahead. I got so many questions. Okay, first of all, first of all, let me just say this film is so good. I've watched it once, but I plan to watch it like four more times because I want to see everything that I might have missed, any of the like little Easter eggs that are in it that I know There's are so in the many. Film. So many. It's so good. But having grown up in Colorado, which you know, because you know my sister, you know my June buggy, which is amazing. And I forgot you guys have crossed paths, and we're gonna talk about that too. But, you know, we came, we grew up in Colorado 
And we never learned. I always loved Westerns. I love watching them, but we were never part of it. We were never in it. I almost sometimes like watching it because there was nothing about us negative in them either. It was basically just white people's story. We had no idea even living in Colorado that even people like Bill Pickett, who you play, who's like a famous cowboy, like super, super famous, whose father was a slave, who was, you know, in Texas doing the thing. And Texas and Colorado have all these connections. We didn't know anything about these black cowboys, including that the person who the Lone Ranger was inspired by was a black cowboy who's portrayed in this film. What did it mean for you to remix this whole idea of the Western in the way that you guys did? The film is dope, did dope, dope, dope. I've already told everybody's the best film. Dope, 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 dope. <laughs> <laughs> dope, 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 dope. Uh, well, I want to go back to just something that you said at the beginning of your tirade uh, about <laughs> wanting to watch this movie multiple times. And this is, it's, it's very rare where you, I think that kind of goes under the classification of a classic. There's few films that you watch and you just know you have to watch again. It doesn't get old. In my experience of it, I've seen the movie uh, two times and it gets better each time for all the reasons that you said. You just notice things that you missed the first time. You have a deeper, deeper understanding. And then as you hear the artists talk about the mission and you hear the artists talk about the impact of what this movie is trying to achieve, you gain even more appreciation for the film. And then you watch it with the new lens. It just gets deeper and deeper. The layers go back. And then I want to talk about how uh, you grew up in Colorado, not knowing that these characters existed. Uh, and you were a fan of Westerns. I wasn't a fan of Westerns. And there was a very specific reason why I wasn't a fan of Westerns, because I didn't see myself in them. Right. It, it rung untrue. There was something about the Western genre that was just boring to me. I didn't, I didn't identify, recognize myself. Uh, and I think on a subconscious level, I just felt like it was not being truthful because we, in fact, were there. You know, we talk about how one in four black cowboys were black. And it's interesting because 1865, coming out of slavery, you have to think about us black people being masters of land cultivation. That was the hard work that they made us do. Then the mm -hmm. hard work began, uh, uh, became breaking horses and doing cattle drives. This is before refrigeration. This is before the railroads, getting the cattle up and through the Americas. It was cowboys that were breaking horses and doing these cattle drives. Breaking horses was a hard task. Bill Pickett in real life died by getting kicked in the head by a horse. It's incredibly dangerous work. Black people were tasked with these hard tasks. They became amazing at it. Stories became legendary of how amazing they were. And then white writers took these black characters and then created the Western genre by erasing. The genre was actually created by erasing us. That's right. Time and time again. Okay, you talked about being on set um, during COVID and really shooting this during the pandemic. But take us on this set because this cast is incredible. Epic. What I mean, and I feel like I feel like you, Eddie, before you arrive on any set, you do your homework. But I wonder if as a as a as a crew, right, as a cast, if you all came together to really kind of dissect what this film was going to be about. What was it like being on on set and what was it like being on set during COVID? Did you all have to test every day? What was that like for you? You know, when you if, if you're lucky as an artist and you're part of a production that has resources, they give you rehearsals. They give you a period to dial in and to ask all the questions so nothing is a surprise when you get the set. This was one of those productions where we had the, uh, the luxury of rehearsals and cowboy camp. 
So we arrived about a month and a half early before cameras lensed, where we were learning how to ride horses, learning how to shoot guns, and rehearsing every day and diving into what story we were trying to tell, what the relationships were. It was in these rehearsals where the actors got together and figured out why are we in each other's lives? How did we, how did we form this gang? Let's go back and talk about maybe some of that history. And these conversations lends, uh, lends itself to deepening the relationships. Um, the cast, I mean, <laughs> the on. cast is, is unbelievable. And what's really cool is, I mean, we're winning a lot of cast ensemble awards right now, which is such a beautiful As you should. Thing. How can you not? Who's, Come I on. mean... You're Idris Elba, Zazie Bates, Regina King, Delroy Lindo, Narotid is in the film. Everybody's in this film. I mean, come on. It's literally everybody you could possibly want to see in a movie. It's in this movie. It's like, I want to so be a fly on the wall when they were just all together just discussing things. Like, I just can't even imagine what that must have been like every day. It, it, it was it was surreal in a way because you know I'm a fan as all of you are of of these these talented artists and uh, and you know like Regina for instance she's even more lovely than you can ever imagine just intelligent beautiful soulful funny down to earth generous I mean uh, I just I, I love Regina but the whole cast you know Lakeith beautiful artist uh, quirky opinionated. Uh, just, just full of heart, you know, it's, it's, I just feel so lucky to be included with this ridiculous cast. <laughs> well, you're great too. And listen, I went, one of the things Amazing. that, I mean, you and I don't bond here today because we have so many things in common. <laughs> you are, you, you have, you are also, I like myself, an African American. Your, your, yeah. your family background is Kenyan. Uh, my family background is Congolese. My absentee father was Congolese. Um, what did it mean to you to have that piece of the continent in your own history? Does that, does that kind of change the way that you kind of look at this genre, having that part of your lineage also on display? Because look, a, a lot of the reason that the cowboys wound up being cowboys is a lot of them were pulled over here because they had that uh, experience, even on the continent, cattle herding. So a lot of people who were cattle herding were dragged over here to do it over here as enslaved people, which I've learned, you know, since I've been an adult, right? Things I didn't know as a kid. But I don't know, did that, did that, how did that ex change your experience? And how does that change your experience about doing these roles about African-American history? And it's interesting when you say cowboys, because that was the name that they gave the, the, the black cowboys, because they weren't. Correct. It was, it was cowmen and then cowboys. Yeah. Cowboys. And that's all anybody knows now is cowboys. Why is that? You know, because we did That's it. Right. Um, yeah, I used to say growing up, I'm 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 a I'm a true African American in the literal sense of the word, African American. Mm -hmm. I was raised here. I came here when I was a baby, so my whole culture. You know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, Oakland, Berkeley, El Cerrito. Um, So, and but I have African parents. They spoke Swahili and Kikuyu at home, but they spoke English. I spoke English. Um, so I, there's a dichotomy in in my entire essence, but we're all the same people. It's that we're all the same people and the American culture is my culture. So when I dive into it, and by the way, I'm a black man in America. The experience that I have every single day is a black man in America. You know, yeah. uh, I suffer the slings and arrows of what black people suffer in this continent um, historically. So for me, um, that's the way that I approach all of the roles 
Uh, otherwise, I would be displaced, you know, because I don't speak Swahili, I don't speak Kikuyu. You know, I, I, can, I can learn a role and play a part that speaks that for that role, uh, but I, I can't work at that level. This is yeah. a level that I could work at. Listen, Eddie, there was a there was a a dance, a a moment on set that has gone viral. And it is I don't know what music is playing in the background because I don't remember it. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's like so many of you from this cast just kind of having a dance moment. Have you seen this? That it went. It's it's everywhere. Can you take us to that moment? When did that happen? And did that happen often? Well, I can't take it to that moment because it happened often. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, 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 look at who directed this movie you know he's uh he's he's a musical that, that's that's his essence he's a musical guy so uh I, I just remember i don't want to throw anybody under the bus but i remember us having such a great time dancing and singing that uh, a crew member actually got frustrated because he just needed to do his job but the rest of the people were just <laughs> cutting up and it was like okay we gotta we gotta tone maybe but it's too much fun. Let's just keep talking. <laughs> so. Okay, you got to tell us who is the funniest member of the cast. And I do want to talk about James Hayden, but who, who's the funniest person? If it's not you, if it's you, you can admit it. Don't be, don't be shy. <laughs> hey, who's the funniest person we had? Uh, God, it's, there's a lot of there's a lot of serious artists in, in this production. <laughs> so I would say I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm the goofiest, but I wasn't goofy at all on this because that's not what my character was and what he represented. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us stayed in character. You know, I still have all of the actors' names in my phone as their characters. Uh, they're, they're the characters in my phone. Uh, so that's how we communicated with each other. That's how we, we referenced each other. Um, so, but I would say the funniest person in the cast isn't in the cast. The funniest person is the director. He's a character. <laughs> you know? Well, speaking of, speaking of the director, you know, you all had some serious... Uh, some folks with some serious musical backgrounds that were a part of this. Um, the director, Jay-Z, is a producer on this. And this soundtrack, everybody is talking Ooh. about almost as much as this movie. I mean, how the at what the soundtrack. At what point, go ahead. At what point did you get to because when you're making the movie, you're not hearing the music. At what point did you have an opportunity to take in the music that was a part of this? I happen to know uh, the director for many years. Um, I was involved in this production uh, in, in one way or another early on. So, you know, I would go to sessions with him when he was coming up with the music with some of the other artists. So I always knew that music would be a, a, a 10th or 11th lead in the yeah. film. Um, it's in, in many ways, the music is the all-star. It is yeah. so it's on crunk. Crazy. Yes. <laughs> it drives the whole thing. You know, uh, it's uh, and, and in the script, there were musical cues. And I remember there were some actresses that, that he was looking at that were particularly taken by the needle drops. You know, <clears throat> she mm. wanted to be. Um, I don't remember what the act, who the actress was, but I remember her saying to him, to him, uh, that the needle drops was was why she wanted to be a part of it. She could just see saw the movie come to life on the page because of the needle drops. She knew what type of movie he was trying to make. Uh, I'm going to go back. The funniest person on, on the set is RJ. RJ. Okay. I, I just thought of that. Of course. Gonna give it a- <laughs> he's youngest. He's goofy. He got the baby. Life. He's the baby. He's opinionated. He is his character. It was actually not hard for me to play Bill Pickett in relation to RJ's uh, Jim Beckworth because they're the same dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have Jay-Z on speed dial now? Are y'all like, you know... <laughs> 
not not yet. Hands on. I think I think I think we'll 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 do that. We'll take that leap in the seat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other I would say the another one of the characters that is that is part of it that is an unspoken character is are the is the costumes. The oh, yeah. look of, of these characters that's so unique and that's just so beautifully done and, and yeah. you know, I, I just feel like this film had to have been such an experience, just wearing those clothes, you know, embodying those human beings that really live. Just give us sort of when you walked away from it and you finally got a chance to sit in front of the camera and look at it and watch it as a viewer. What was your first thought? What was your thought? It, for me, it would have been overwhelming. I probably would have cried. <laughs> it, it's, it's that, you know, it's it's that it's it's emotional. Um, what you're looking at is. Not a rewriting of history, but a correcting of history. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're in the audience saying, yeah, that's what we've been missing. This is what we needed. And the door now. <clears throat> and I think that this is an important point. Netflix is global reach. It's different than a studio movie opening in China. You know, it's it's in almost every single country simultaneously. So by definition, it's a blockbuster film. And you can do a biopic of Rufus Buck or Nat Love. You can do a super serious, you know, film, but it won't travel in the way that this spectacle travels and automatically enters the conversation in a deeper way. That's what I think is clever about this, is having all of these real-life historical figures in a blockbuster film uh, that's on the streaming platform that has the most global reach. It's Well, and I, I have to say, and, from, and not having to have the convenient white character, you know, to make white audiences feel comfortable watching it, because that's even happened, you know, with past films Idris Elba was in, I think of one in particular where he played uh, an African who was leading a band of child soldiers, where it was like, the awards ignored it because a lot of the times they feel like there's not like a, a redeeming white character that like saves the day that's at the end. It's like the deus ex machina saves everybody. They, the white audience won't want to watch it. Well, you know what? This thing opened at number one on Netflix and rode that number one. Yes, audiences all around the world will watch a black cast film. And I feel like that was a huge statement that was made. There's zero white gaze in our film. And back to Beast of No Nation, the Idris Elba film, that, that it, it's criminal how overlooked that film was. His performance in that was spectacular. The film was spectacular. It was ahead of its time. You know, The Heart of the Fall could not have gotten made 15 years ago when James came up with the idea, 10 years ago when he was hustling to try to get it made. It came at the right moment, and it's a wonderful way to enter the conversation, splash into it. Yeah. yeah. Got to ask you about some of your other work before we let you go. You are joining the cast of For All Mankind, what can you tell us? When do you all start filming that? Have you started already? Who will you be playing? Uh, we, we just wrapped season three. Season three will be my first season. And we wrapped that in September. It'll come out at some point next year, maybe Q2, Q3. Uh, I play this is like a reimagining of the space race. Yes. It's what if Ru- the USSR, Russia landed on the moon before the U.S. And if the arms race never never ended in earnest. They just kept elevating and escalating. So in 1990, you'll see like uh, Tesla's, you know, for instance, like the technology is expanded at an exponential rate. Um, I play a tech billionaire who, you know what, to speak about my character in any meaningful way is to spoil the entire season. (laughs) It's, It's a role that I've never played before. I'm excited about, you know, wearing the skin of this dude. And he's, I think he's pretty significant. And I hope we get picked up for season four so we can we can keep keep uh, exploring that that storyline. 
Well, diehard fans of yours would kill me if I did not ask you about startup and the possibility of another season. I have to ask, I mean, because it just ended so abruptly for those of us who love that series. Anything you can tell us? I mean, we ain't coming back unless June come back. (laughs) (laughs) Make it happen. I already love Eddie. Listen, and you can do work with my with my June buggy. I mean, listen, I could not love you. See this series, you would love (laughs) it. You gotta see it. You gotta see it. It's so good. I hit you up if I come to New York. You're in New York, right? <laughs> no, I, now I'm in I'm in Maryland. Now we gonna talk. We gonna talk. Well, you're back okay. and forth. Yeah, 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 I go yeah. back and forth. I go back and forth. I'm in New York enough. I'm in New York enough. Excellent. Uh, season four is something that you know it, it seems like the audience wants, and it's just a matter of I don't know. I think there's technical um, conversations that need to happen with who owns the rights because Netflix uh, licensed it, and then that's where it officially took off. But Netflix isn't really into making shows that they're not originate originals of. Uh, so it's something that the audience wants. I want it. The cast wants it. The showrunner, I think they're out there talking to people, you know, let's see. Yeah. yeah. Let's demand it. Let's, let's start a, let's start a, Listen, uh, it has to happen. It was so, so good. Yeah. Will there be a sequel to the harder they fall? Please. Let's talk about it openly. Um, and I, I don't know what that looks like, but he, he, he intimated at it at the end of the heart of their fall with the, the, the bowler hat that Regina's character. Yep. So uh, I'd be surprised with the success of it. And now that it feels like a, a runaway train. And because of that, I can't imagine that, that they're not going to be some form of a sequel. Well, it seems like it I would want, be yeah, an opportunity people, not I to dig into know. the backstories of all of these characters. You yes. know what I mean? That to me yeah. is a missed opportunity. There's like so many spinoffs that could happen in sequels. You can do spinoffs. You can do sequels. I mean, come on now. We want, I want a graphic novel. I want a prequel. I want it all. Like, give it to us. We want all ten of us get a standalone. Yes. yes. Come That's on. what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Let's do that. I love it. <laughs> this plan is excellent. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well. Eddie, it has been a pleasure to have you on uh, Read This, Read That, Come Back Anytime. We'll have to have you and June Carroll. We'll have a, a reunion. Um, yes. And, you- <laughs> and I'll just laugh and kiki through the whole thing. I won't on even ask show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for Eddie, being you're here. you're amazing. You were brilliant in that movie, dude. So let, give us another one. We'll watch your solo one when they do your solo Oh, yeah. Movie. Okay. That's oh, what's up. Eddie. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you. Be well. Okay, you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Read This, Read That. Joanne, what are you going to do for you this weekend real quick? Sleep. What are you going to (laughs) do? I'm going to watch the new Amazon series, Harlem. I'm going to binge it because I know it's going to be so good. I know it's going to be a good one. I'll tell you all about it. You guys, be sure to tune in to MSNBC every Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. to check out my play cousin, Joanne Reed, on The Readout. And help her go viral on Twitter. <laughs> Please do, but just in a nice way. Say nice things. In about a nice it. way, in a kind yeah, way. Get into Vegan Sexy Cool. You can go to vegansexycool.com. You can go to Vegan Sexy Cool on the gram. It is great. I had a vegan salad for lunch today, Jackie. You'll be very proud of oh, me. Um, very nice. Just okay. I didn't like the fakey bacon, but we can talk about that later. You can, we get can me talk some- about it. There are various types of bacon. We find you the right Fakey bacon wasn't Keep the day, but I did, I did too. All right. And follow us on social media at Read This, Read That, you guys. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye.
announcing the Mocha Podcast Network, an innovative lifestyle podcast network featuring conversations from a black perspective. Curated with respected voices led by actresses and comedians Sherry Shepard and Kim Whitley. We're funny and we have a yes. point of view. We call that edumatainment. That's what we call it. Is that what it is? Veteran TV journalist Rolanda Watts. Shocking the heck out of everybody. The legendary Unky Divas in Vogue. This topic is girl groups in the industry. To syndicated broadcast personalities, Lonnie Love and Dee Dee McGuire, as well as an array of experts and activists. Mocha Podcast Network, a lifestyle destination with authentic voices and perspectives designed to enrich and empower women of color with a unique listening experience. More than a destination, the Mocha Podcast Network is a full-service studio that offers an ongoing portfolio of production, distribution, marketing, guest booking, and most importantly, ad sales. With a unique revenue model for podcasters that includes customized promotional campaigns created specifically around podcaster and targeted audience, service social media promos and pushes, MPN brand advertising, Targeted electronic newsletter. Experienced sales representation. For advertisers, the Mocha Podcast Network is a safe marketplace to align their brands with trusted voices, organically engaging the highly in-demand female consumer and more. With quality over quantity, from concept to completion, now is the time for content creators and brands to join the innovative Mocha Podcast Network and experience unapologetic conversations with a new perspective.